Lifestyle Matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmeli and filling in for Dave Pop, which I've got Leanna Wachniak. Leanna, welcome. Nice to be here again, Faisal. Leanna, there's um, more and more information out there about um, the confidence or shall we say lack of confidence in retirement. Mm -hmm. 2022 was a very challenging year when we look at markets, when we look at inflation, and look at what's going on out there. People still want to do a whole bunch of things like travel and so forth, and maybe the confidence has been a little bit rattled. And how it's changed as well over the last few years. I think that's probably also one of the really interesting things that we've seen. I don't think it'd be too surprising to Canadians that there that there's a change overall in the confidence level. I think we got to get into the details of why uh, a bit more and, and what does that mean for the average individual approaching or living in retirement. And we've got our guest here, Kristen Beaver. She's the chair of chair and re, of research committee at the Canadian Public Pension Leadership Council. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's go right into it. Uh, according to the survey, 15% uh, less likely in 2022 to express confidence. Tell me more about what are some of the key factors that played into this, I'll call it, lack of confidence. I think you really touched on it in your opening remarks. The survey didn't get into the individual factors, but the whole reason we ran the survey in 2022 was because the world was such a different place compared to 2016. So inflation, as you touched on, interest rates, when we look at housing affordability, all of these things at a, at a broad level clearly seem to be affecting Canadians' confidence in their ability to retire when and how they want. And as you mentioned, it, we saw a 15 percentage point decrease in, the, in that confidence. So in 2016, 44% uh, of Canadians thought that they'd be able to retire when they would like to. And in 2020, that dropped to 29%. Wow. That's, that's a big drop there. Can you maybe give us maybe a Alberta or kind of Western Canada specific number to that? Yeah, the most notable one in Alberta where we saw a difference compared to um, trends in other parts of Canada was in the expectation to retire debt free. And what we saw there was a 20 percentage point decrease. So in 2016, 49% uh, of folks in the prairies thought that they'd be able to retire debt free, whereas in 2022, that had dropped to 29%. And we can compare that to the numbers for Canada, which was actually a 16 percentage point decrease. So in the prairie region, it was a much bigger decrease. So I'm shocked already because the, the, the 2016 numbers weren't very bright anyways. Less than half of the people didn't feel they're going to retire on time or retire debt-free. And now we're I, less than a third are feeling that. So it was, it's gone from bad to worse in my, my view. Is that, is that how you see the data? It is, but we also see opportunities. I think what it's showing us is that we need to do more for Canadians so that they can retire with confidence. And the report talks a bit about this. Um, we need to find uh, solutions for Canadians to retire with ease, with confidence, and to save while they're working. So we talk about expanding access to, to pension plans while Canadians are working. And we also talk about the importance of financial literacy, because when we're talking about confidence at an individual level, you don't know if that person feels a lack of confidence, but they actually are able to retire, or if they find retirement to be 
sort of a mysterious subject, right? And so it, it's giving them stress to think about it. And so we really see financial literacy uh, as something that could that could be used to address this. So while the numbers uh, are not terrific, we we see that there's opportunities that people can can jump on to try and make it better for for Canadians. Let's go down that financial literacy path if we can. What areas of recommendation would you give to whichever provincial, federal governments, the education system? And we're talking about people who are gone through the primary years that are school. They've gone through post secondary and they're still feeling this stress. So there's a lack of financial literacy to some degree with that group of the population. What can the governments and other programs and associations do to increase the financial literacy for that demographic specifically? That's a really good question. I think one of the things we see is inflation has really reared its head. A lot of working Canadians probably have not had to consider inflation beyond maybe a theoretical uh, concept and now it's really in their face and I think addressing inflation as a key topic of financial literacy is is key another thing would be looking at as we say people feel less confident that they'll be able to retire without debt so debt management clearly needs to be an important topic of financial literacy for 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 Canadians of all ages uh, one of the things that was the same in both surveys when we looked at it was the driver of retirement stress. And in both surveys, it was equally high numbers of Canadians saying that they are afraid of running out of money in retirement. That is the fear of when, when they're stressed out about retirement, that's the main thing that they're concerned about. And so I think in terms of financial literacy, we also need to talk about uh, do you have a plan? Do you participate in a in a plan at work? If you don't and you have the opportunity, <laughs> why not? And and helping people to understand why that would be helpful. Uh, times are tough and maybe the short term uh, savings right now, it, it feels like a lot, but thinking long term about how that's going to help you and make you feel more confident when it is time to retire. Uh, the other thing we could look at in terms of financial literacy and stress is what products are available to help you. So if your fear is running out of uh, money in retirement, are there products available that you know about that could help you turn some of your uh, savings into an income stream? Sorry, yeah, Leanne, I was just gonna jump in there because I think uh, what Kristen is talking to us about, I think there's, you and I have these, these chats almost every single day. Um, there are two types of plans I think Canadians definitely need. One is a health plan. Mm -hmm. I think they don't do that on a regular basis to understand baseline where they're at and where they want to be from a health perspective. And I don't believe that the lion's share of Canadians have a financial, a written financial plan. Right. And I don't think that um, what our industry has done has turned a financial plan into a selling tool. Yes, yes. And it's not the real, it's a health check for your finances that it should be. But Correct. something that we actually go back to on a regular basis that you that you use to then make decisions about your financial future. And I think that's where the, the, the change can also happen, Chris. And I think there's a lot that financial institutions can do. Of course, they're in the business to make money. And of course, if they're going to be utilizing tools like a financial plan to generate more sales, I, I understand how that business works. It's not in the greater good of the public always, uh, but, it, it all, but it can be mandated from 
other areas of how to get this done. Health plans, wealth plans, or financial plans, I think are necessary. Who do you think bears that responsibility? Is it the provinces? Is it a federal government? Or is it other associations outside of financial institutions that should be really promoting the whole concept of financial well-being? We talk about in the report approaching financial literacy as a as a holistic thing. And we do talk about there being maybe opportunities for government to partner with nonprofits in order to help Canadians access things. There are programs, for example, that exist for debt management that are run by nonprofit organizations. So if, if Canadians are concerned about that, that is an option. Uh, in terms of assigning responsibility, uh, that's a very tough question because everyone's lives are so different. <laughs> and um, But one of the things we do talk about as an opportunity is employers actually uh, could benefit from providing financial literacy uh, to their to their employees. Uh, when we looked at some of the stress, uh, it affected all aspects of Canadians' lives, including productivity at work. And notably, the biggest thing when you speak about health is that 47% of Canadians said that retirement planning stress has at least a moderate impact on their health. And so that, of course, has implications for productivity as well. So there's a real opportunity for employers to embrace financial literacy um, as something that's good for their employees generally, but also is very good for them when you're thinking about things like productivity and, and not having employees stressed out while they're, while they're on the job with you. Productivity, financial stress, and hopefully a better health system. And we can definitely well, do that for sure in the future. I want to thank you, Kristen, for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. We've been joined by Kristen B for Chair of, Re Chair of Research Committee at the Canadian Public Pension Leadership Council. Now, romance scams is something that we talk about increasingly often with some of our clients. And I know that you've actually had a recent experience with that. Yeah, I want to tell you this story, Liana, because um, I think it's, it's something that raised a flag for us. Uh, we have an individual that um, sat down with us for a meeting and he uh, basically was telling us that he's dating somebody out of New York. Fantastic. We're happy to hear that you're happy. You know, how many times do you get to meet this person? Oh, I've never met her. Okay. How do you, how do you stay in contact? Oh, we're communicating online and we're having chats. And I want to go down to New York to see her. But she's asking me to send some money over so I can get into this investment with her. And I want to send $100,000 over. And of course, flags are flying everywhere for us. Mm -hmm. We're like, oh, no, no, we got to stop this. Slow this down. Let's figure this out before you send $100,000 over. I'll, I'll, I'll make a long story short by saying basically what was happening in the situation is that they were trying, this person was trying to get uh, the individual here in Calgary to send money to some sort of investment so that he can make 20 times his money mm -hmm. and they'll send it back. And, and it was a big issue. It, we found out it was... He was being scammed by an individual. The individual was not in New York, mm -hmm. hence why they haven't met. Uh, but it's it's something that caused a concern. And that's why we, we have this guest on our show to talk about these types of frauds are happening all the time. This is one example. But there's a whole bunch of, we'll call them romance scams that are out there. And we have our guest from the Alberta Securities Commission, Cynthia Campbell, Director of Enforcement. Uh, Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So let's talk about this. Romance scams, what are they? Well, Faisal, as you've described, these types of romance scams are, 
are becoming increasingly common and they're very much as you've described where individuals meet online there's a virtual relationship whether it's through a dating website or or other ways email messages other ways of meeting online and the scammer works to build the trust and affection of the person that they are trying to victimize so they they create this artificial relationship that that the other individual believes is real and it often results in these the scammers either directly asking for money or is in the situation you've described that we're seeing a lot more often now encouraging the victim to invest to send them either send the the other person money to invest on their behalf or to invest directly into a scam website. So, so what should people be doing to be on the lookout for this? Like, are they are they targeting specific individuals with a certain type of profile, or is this so broad that we should be doing some more, I'll call it, due diligence before we start getting to an on online relationship? These types of romance scams are part of a broader group of investment scams. Romance scams are just one version of an investment scam. And we are seeing a proliferation across Canada and globally of these investment scams. So there, there are things that people should be watching out for. And, and we should all be aware that technology is enabling these scams to happen more frequently and to be better. And, and more customized to each person. So, you know, a, a romance scam, there may be some people who, who are seeking a relationship who may be more vulnerable to that type of scam. There may be others who will fall victim to investment scams because they're interested in saving funds for their children's education or they're looking to boost their retirement savings. So there's, it's what I call now a scam for everyone. Um, and so we should be beware of that and, and not think that there are only certain people who are, who are vulnerable. We're all potentially vulnerable now. So in terms of what to watch for, we need to really be careful, especially online, um, and ask ourselves first, is the person or company or this investment opportunity registered? It's important to invest through registered individuals and firms and, and trading platforms to ensure that they're selling qualified investments and that they meet the regulatory requirements. It's really easy in Alberta to check registration. The, the Alberta Securities Commission has a website called checkfirst.ca. People can go there, go to, to the list of registration, type in a name and find out whether or not that person or company is registered in Alberta. Another step people can take is to take your time. Don't get pressured into sending money quickly or investing in something immediately. Um, that's often a red flag when someone's trying to act with high pressure. To be aware of investing through people um, and, and those that you've only met online, you don't actually know that person in person. Um, if, we, we see a lot of, of these artificial relationships where, whether it's romantic or otherwise, where someone's looking simply to gain trust and to use that for fraudulent reasons. So what are some of the most common, um, let's say, red flags that are involved in these types of scams? Like, what are the things that pop up that people should, they should catch their attention and say, maybe I should do a double check about this? We often say if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And, and from my experience, it almost always is too good to be true. If someone is offering uh, an investment where they say, look, it's a safe bet, they're guaranteed high returns, there's little or no risk involved, um, be really, really careful. The reality is that with high returns and investments, 
comes high risk, even if it's a legitimate investment. So beware of that. Um, beware if, if an investment is being offered through a close friend or a family member, a work colleague. What we're seeing is that, that the scammers are bringing one person in and building trust with that person. And sometimes that person will even be able to take some of their money back out of the investment. So I might put $100,000 in this scenario into this online investment platform and look to get a return and pull some of that money out. And they may allow me to do that. And the reason that happens is they're building my trust. Because as soon as I say, hmm, I'm making a lot of money off this, I'm much more likely now to go and tell my family, my friends, people I work with. You know, we have one individual in Edmonton where we found out this one person who had been victimized brought 38 other people into the scam with her um, because she thought she was doing her friends, family, and, and colleagues a favor by helping them. So, so be really careful that just because it's someone you know, uh, it doesn't mean that it, it's actually a genuine investment. Cynthia, we've got about two minutes left. I want to I want to ask you a question like this. So my father is 79 years of age. He goes online. He calls it the Yahoo, by the way. It's not just Yahoo. He calls it the Yahoo. So we kind of get an idea of his thought process there. Um, and on the Yahoo comes up this opportunity to invest. Well, we'll get him 20% returns. What questions should my father be asking before he clicks, yes, I want to invest? The first thing you should ask is, can I afford to give this money away to a fraudster? And if I can't, I probably shouldn't be doing this. You should be asking, is, is this online platform that he's seeing, is it registered? Go to checkfirst.ca and see if it's registered. He should be aware that the vast majority of online investment opportunities where people are being offered an opportunity to invest directly right now, the vast majority of these are scams. There are only 10 or 11 crypto trading platforms in Canada that are registered through a securities regulator, but there are thousands out there that are offering these opportunities. So it's really important to check registration. Um, and, and if your father were by chance to invest in one of these. What we see then is people who have been victimized will be approached with opportunities to recover their money. And they need to know that those, those are also scams. We call them recovery room scams, where it's the same fraudsters will reach out and, and try to help them. So sometimes people dig themselves into a hole by becoming a victim of these frauds and they, they actually keep digging deeper because they now think they're working with someone online who's going to help them. By if you pay a fee, um, you'll, you may get your money back. It's just more money being, being put into the hands of the fraudsters. Great information, great advice, not only from my dad, but for everybody listening and watching this, we've been joined by Cynthia Campbell, Director Enforcement of the Alberta Securities Commission. Cynthia, thank you once again. Thank you very much. Liana, retiring is fun. Retiring in a different country, at least owning a home there where you can make it your winter home for us Canadians. Mm -hmm. Sounds pretty interesting too. Sounds fantastic. Okay, my question for you, Liana. You've got a choice. Anywhere, Europe, Asia, South America, where would you buy your retirement? Your, your, your vacation property for your retirement? I think I'd probably buy my vacation property in Europe somewhere. Fantastic. Europe is very popular. Mm -hmm. I would lean more to like your Caribbean, South America style, somewhere close to home still. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think these are, these are areas that we've seen 
in in uh, a trend we got there's the editor of real estate trend alert and they're telling us that there are a whole bunch of locations where you can buy retirement homes for under one hundred and fifty thousand dollars i can't wait to hear about it well we've got ronan mcmahon he's the editor of real estate trend alert ronan welcome to the show lovely to be here thank you so much for having me First of all, let all of our listeners and viewers know, where are you at this point in time? Because it's a beautiful location right behind you. Um, I'm in Cork, Ireland. I'm on my summer vacations in my hometown of Cork, Cork, Ireland. Um, I live the spring and the fall in um, on the beach just north of Lisbon in, in Portugal. And winters, I head to Cabo San Lucas. So, you know, I'm living proof that you know, it's very affordable and achievable to have, you know, a home or multiple homes and bases to just be in various places at the best time of the year to, to, to be there. So, you know, that's my guiding philosophy. That's why I'm in Ireland this time of year, but for sure not in Ireland in January and February. <laughs> Well, that sounds incredible. And for all of our listeners, you've kind of put together this list of these top places to retire. But what makes a what makes a place a good place to retire, to buy property in and retire to? So I, I suppose there, there's multiple kind of layers to that, you know, from, from the real estate perspective. There's going to be what can you get in terms of, you know, your bang for your buck? What does that 150 or 250 or whatever the, the number buy you? There's, you know, what are your holding costs going to be? Um, what are your property taxes, your insurances? Um, and then there's the cost of, of living, you know, how, how, how rich and accessible, you know, is wonderful food, wonderful experiences. And the thing is, you know, when you go to other parts of the world, you know, they just absolutely, you know, that the value you can get is 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 quite astonishing. You know, just to maybe start at the the least sexy part of it, you know, some of the properties I list in my report, you know, you're talking about annual holding costs, you know, include all your taxes, all your insurances, everything, you know, even even HOAs, if if there is HOA, all of that can be, you know, under five to to seven hundred dollars per year. I mean, literally nothing compared to to what you what you guys pay in Canada. And then, you know, there's there's the perception that when you know people from faraway fields think of a second home in somewhere like France or, or Italy, you know, they're thinking big ticket prices they're thinking kind of George Clooney real estate and George Clooney set now of course that all exists and you know you can find yourself a 75 million dollar apartment in Venice or a 100 million chateau in in France or in 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 the Loire Valley but if you're willing to go a bit off the beaten track you can just find wonderful homes you know with gardens with fruit trees with a water supply close to a village close to a bakery you know at those sticker prices of $150,000 or less so Rona we're going to kick it off with the top three of your 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 hits on this list there's eight on this report anybody wants to get the report we can connect them with it so they can they can look at the entire report but let's go on a countdown number three top location 
before you have oh, your okay. so, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So n- number three for sure would be would be Umbria in 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 Italy. You know, just this is a place you have you have you have relatively easy accessibility to Rome. You've beautiful rolling countryside. You've proximity to beach. You've amazing food, and you just have just these beautiful hill towns. And you just have incredible, you know, just incredible bang bang for your buck. How about number two? Number two would be that would be somewhere in southwest France, probably Languedoc. Um, there I'd look for a south-facing village valley property. This is a part of the world where these microclimates are really, really important because you're a bit further north than my other places, so you want to be getting that blast of, of spring sunshine. Again, you know, you've proximity to major cities like Montpellier, which is like a, a second Paris, it's just absolutely fabulous city. Proximity to beach, skiing, I'm a golfer, there's plenty of great golf and incredible real estate values, like like really, really pretty stone cottages that you can buy there in need of a bit of, of attention, but within that kind of price bracket. And number one? Number one would be I'm 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 a Portugal guy at heart. That's where I've chosen to make my home. Admittedly, I've made my home in a in a beach community, true beachfront, where you know where you won't get a foothold for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But if you move about forty five minutes inland from me into the Coimbra area, um, you can buy just either a fabulous farmhouse on an acre or two with fruit trees proximity to Coimbra which they call the Oxford of Portugal um, it's an ancient university city UNESCO World Heritage Site Lisbon is an hour and a half south Porto two hours north you're in the midst of beautiful countryside easy access to amazing metropolitan areas and just an incredible real estate values and an incredibly low cost of living so that would be my number one at a at a stretch we have about a minute left to go or so how easy is it for a canadian to buy a property in your top three areas italy france and portugal um, very, very easy. Um, first of all, Portugal probably easiest. The bureaucracy there is a bit less heavy than, say, the the the, the Italian bureaucracy, but really easy really straightforward just you just need to be patient let's say this time of year you wanted to do some business in an italian town hall they'd pretty much say to you come back to come back to me in september so once you embrace these challenges um you need to get a, a competent and reliable local attorney that's the big thing follow the rules foreigners sometimes come and think yeah i'm going to kind of bend the rules a bit here don't it will it will backfire on you it won't be appreciated but get a good lawyer take your time follow the steps and it's no more complicated than buying at home and that's great advice great tips from rona mcmahon uh, McMahon. he's the editor of real estate trend alert how do they get a hold of more of your alerts and information Ronan? Yeah, c- come visit me at my website, um, RonanMcMahon.com. Um, I've 
recently I've my my most recent book you can download the the first chapter of 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 that for free and and I also have some other articles up there so that that would be the best starting point thank you for joining us today one thank you so much for having me Liana it's um been a good show so far I think we need to chat about one thing that we uh, we've seen a trend in happening this year um, when it comes to people and their portfolios. So before the break, I was talking about you know these are the things that financial institutions are not going to tell you about your investments. Mm-hmm. And I think the one key thing that people have to understand there's there's no benefit in discussing risk, only return. Well, that's the thought. That's that's what gets advertised. You you can earn X percent, and that's that is full stop. The only thing that we hear about. But what do you? What kind of risk do you have to take on to earn that percent? Is a question that I don't think gets asked often enough. And then the other question is: risk is actually quite a difficult concept to either break down into numbers or break down in a meaningful way. So then the other question becomes, how do you do that? So maybe let's start with the risk versus return question mark. We know that you have to take on some level of risk in order to earn return in your portfolio. That's what you're rewarded for. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so when when it comes to risk, it's we'll use the word volatility. There, there are multiple risks that we can identify. One is 100% loss of capital. Let's take that off the table for a second. Let's assume that when an investor is going in, uh, they are not looking at that there is a risk of 100% loss of their capital. So let's take that off. Let's talk about volatility. And I think this is where the lion's share of the industry is headed. We have already started to see more and more investments, portfolios, Money managers talk about their rates of return, um, and I'll, and we've pulled off a couple of well-known, well-managed, phenomenal portfolio managers in this country. And I've got the data in my hand, and I'll give you an example. We'll call it Portfolio One versus Portfolio Two over the last ten years. Portfolio One has an eight percent. Average annual rate of return. Portfolio two has a ten percent average annual rate of return. Ten's better than eight. Take the ten. If you were, if that's the only information you're given, the logical thing would be to say, "Well, give me the ten percent return. That's what I'm looking for." And that's all they're going to be given, because when you're trying to promote your product, when you're trying to promote your portfolio or yourself. You always talk about your performance. You don't talk about the risks you have to take, or willing to accept, in order to have that performance. So we did some digging, mm-hmm. and let me go into this. Portfolio one has a rate of return of eight percent on average over the last ten years. Portfolio two is ten percent. Portfolio one, which has lower rate of return, the volatility or risk you need to be willing to accept is ten percent swings. So you need to be willing to accept around a hundred thousand dollar drop for every million dollars you invest. If you want two percent more, you have to be willing to take in portfolio number two 
15 to 16% swings. So if you have a million dollars, now it's a $150,000 drop. We know, and we've been doing this for a long time, when people make money, they speak in percent. When they lose money, they speak in dollars. So that's why I'm bringing up the dollars. And I wish that our industry, at some point in the near future, puts the risk metric up. And they say, we did, if I was portfolio number two, 10% average rate of return, but you need to take on a 15% risk or $150,000 per million. And portfolio one then can say 8% rate of return with $100,000 risk or 10%. You decide which one you want based on that risk tolerance level. Well, and the interesting thing is, I think one of the reasons that a lot of advisors don't show people that is because that's a measure of, the measure of risk, there are several measures of risk, but one of those is standard deviation. It's complicated to explain, the math is complicated behind it, the formula is long and intimidating for a lot of people, and so it's very difficult to conceptualize for most people. When you say 10% volatility, 10% downside risk, something like that, what does that actually mean for me in dollar figures? If you actually break that down and say, on my portfolio of a million dollars, this is what this could mean for me in any given year, I could see on average a $100,000 loss. Am I comfortable with that? It allows people to actually do the gut check properly. Correct. Where they can actually say, can I sleep at night with that potential? And Leanna, I believe that most of our peers in the industry don't even know what their volatility of their portfolios are. Potentially. Unless they're given that data from their firm and they take that information and they use it as part of their portfolio construction, I don't think they really know. I have peers in the industry, friends, run their own portfolios, and I ask them, what's your, what's your risk matrix, what's your volatility and they look at me going, what? what? I don't know that number. Like, you haven't memorized how much risk you're taking for your clients? No. I just buy on the quality of the company. So you could take 15, 20, 30% risks. Yep. And you're okay with that? Yep. Are your clients? Don't know. Well, they're focused on performance over time. That's the number that they're really looking at is that return number. And whatever it takes them to get to that return number is what they'll do, which for some clients might be fine. And then it becomes a feedback loop from the clients. If you've got clients calling you going, I'm not comfortable with where my portfolio is today, that's when they go, well, maybe I should take some of the riskier stuff out of your portfolio. But then the question becomes, is that right for all of your clients? And for us in particular, because we focus on retirement, because we work with people who are retiring or approaching retirement, they are not able to absorb that level of risk over time. So that's, it, that's also part of the question. Where are you in your life? Are you comfortable? Do you have a long enough time horizon that, to say, it's okay, I've got 30 years for this thing to come back if it takes a 15, 20% drop? And it's not only what are you comfortable, that gut check, it's also what's realistic in your financial situation. Because if you take a 15% drop or a 10% drop, how long will it take you to recover? Because you will need those assets in the future. The longer the recovery rate, the less chance of you having a successful retirement. So it'll last 
throughout your retirement. That's, that's the key thing. You may be comfortable that you can take a whole bunch of volatility, but that may not be suitable for your situation. Well, exactly. And because we only have a couple minutes left, that actually brings up a good point about risk and risky or non-risky assets. GICs are a big conversation these days. Correct. Rates are great. But what are the risks that people don't think about with GICs? I actually had a person that came in and said, I want to buy GICs. What do you think? And I'm like, that's an option. It's completely on the table. So let's put all the risks of owning GICs on the table. And they looked at me and said, it's risk-free. I said, aha. So how long of a a GIC are you going to buy? You're going to buy a 100-year GIC? There's no such thing. Okay, so what's the time frame, the term? Let's go three years because that's the highest rate, and then it starts to fall after three years. Okay, so what happens after three years? Well, I don't know. Whatever the rates are, the rates are. So reinvestment risk is an issue. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Are you only going to live off the interest? Yes. So let's say it's 5%. you got your million dollars. You're making 50000 What if you need an extra $1,000? Where are you going to get it from? Ooh. Access to capital risk. Right there. And then... Is it the most tax efficient? So you're going to be put on a fixed budget with no access to capital, with the least tax advantage, and you're telling me there's no risk of investing in a GIC? Sure there is. You just have to be aware of what they are and do they fit your, your circumstance. Well, and I, that's exactly the point, I think. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter which product that you go to. It has to suit your situation. That's the important piece. Of course, at any time that you were talking about portfolios, risk, returns, products like GICs and so forth, make sure you get the proper financial advice before you go ahead with any investment strategy. On Tuesday, September 26th, 7 p.m. at the Hamptons Golf and Country Club, we will be hosting our seminar on how to make sure you can bulletproof your retirement. That's the place you can put all three together and see the solutions. You have to register by going to morethanmoneyradio.com. We will see you there. And on behalf of Liana and myself, Faisal, thank you for joining us on More Than Money on QR Calgary. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.